Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Heavenly Father, indeed, you are worth all the glory that we can muster, all the praise that we can muster, all the, all the adulation is for you. And yet so easily we charge through each week, striving after our own praise and glory and adulation. Now, we pray tonight that you would so remove from us our love of our own wisdom and knowledge and power. Show us uh, what it really is. Uh, show us your wisdom. Uh, show us your power. Show us your son. Uh, we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, please uh, turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. As Paul said, uh, we, we started having a look at this uh, last week together, and we're going to pick it up uh, from verse 11. And tonight, page 672 uh, of the Church Bibles, as we continue our journey uh, through Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 7 uh, tonight. It's a book, uh, if you've been here since uh, the start of the year, that's, uh, that's uh, how long we've been in it uh, together. We've been uh, seeing the, the teacher, Koheleth, as he's called the teacher, all throughout this book, speaking God's word to us. Uh, speaking a word that gives us a very clear account of what it is like to live life uh, where we are, life under the sun, life on this uh, ball that spins around the sun that we each live on. And although uh, at points, if you have been here, uh, we will say together that it has been an uncomfortable account of life, not, uh, not always pleasant. It's not a surprise that Paul was asked, uh, how can you smile at the end of uh, looking at Ecclesiastes? It is that sort of book. Uh, one person uh, described it to me a few weeks ago like having a rusty fork stuck in your eye. So there it is. But let me suggest this. Uh, while it is uncomfortable, uh, the more we listen to it, uh, the more the teacher's words, uh, which are the words of our God, uh, echo uh, in our hearts, the more we will see they actually echo our own experience of life, life under the sun. Again and again, at each turn uh, that the teacher has, has taken, uh, each part of life that he's observed, it's, uh, again and again we can think, yes, I know what you're talking about. Uh, turn after turn, life under the sun is frustrating and limited and fleeting and ultimately, and this has been one of the big themes all the way through the book, ultimately rendered futile by death. Death comes along and writes Havel, meaningless, over everything that we've achieved, everything that we aspire to, everything that we have. And the question that we've been addressing uh, just in these recent weeks, especially in chapter 7, is how do you actually live in a world like that, a world that is frustrating and limited and ultimately futile. How can you possibly live well in a world like that? It's a question that uh, chapter 7 gives us one of, the, uh, one of the typical human answers to that question. Now, how do you live life under the sun? How do you live it well? How do you overcome these things? Uh, you remember it from last week if you were here? How do you straighten out what is crooked in this world? Well, you do it through wisdom, through knowledge, uh, the way to uh, master life under the sun is to become an expert in life. If you know enough, if you're clued up enough, uh, you will be able to sort of sail above all the frustrations, all the chaos. Uh, after all, knowledge is power, perhaps power to control life. And that's what we want. Uh, we want to be able to control our life. 
And it's important to acknowledge that why we want that power. It's not that each one of us has sort of desires to take over the world, sort of world domination. We don't want that amount of power. We just want enough power to control just our part of life. Because what uh, the teacher's been talking about throughout these weeks is he's talked about our working life, our pleasures, our, the way we use our time, you name it, he's talked about it. He's talking about real life. This isn't a, some sort of theoretical discussion. Uh, it's not some abstract philosophy. This is real stuff, uh, the life of flesh and blood that we know. And yes, we do want to be able to control it. We do want to feel we are in control of our lives. And so the frustrations that he's been speaking of are frustrations we know all too well. The limitations that he's been speaking of, we know them because they hem us in. And so it's natural, I think, to want to control those things. Uh, We want something that will give us power to, if you like, as we come across them in life, to unkink the bends that come along. When life takes a sharp turn, we want to be able to straighten it back out. We want the power to fix things when they break. Who doesn't? Do you know that desire for that sort of power to be able to fix things? Uh, Just this week, on Elizabeth's side of the family, uh, her uncle Stan, uh, who some years ago uh, had a a liver transplant, uh, was once again finding himself uh, in the situation where the liver was increasingly failing, uh, waiting, waiting for another liver, waiting, 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 getting more sick day after day. Uh, And then getting to the point in these last days, in these last weeks, as text messages come in from uh, Sydney to say he is now at a point where he's not well enough, even if a liver came through. through. Uh, Speaking uh, with Elizabeth's mother this week, it is that very power she wanted. And it's, it's not an extreme desire, is it? To want to turn back time, to want to reverse things enough so that he would be well enough to receive this liver. To then get the call, uh, just uh, in these last few days, that time had run out. Don't you want the power to fix things when they break, especially when it matters? This isn't a theoretical discussion, is it? This is real life. This is lives that we care about. We want the power to fix things. And it's not just at the personal level. A a country like Syria, with all that is going on there, just uh, hearing this week of uh, emails from the regime between each other... uh, completely indifferent to the horror going on in their countries, completely indifferent. We groan for the power to change those sort of things, to remove a regime like that, to have none of that in our world. We want that sort of power. Life under the sun, we want the power to fix things. But if you've been uh, here last week, you would have seen uh, what the Word of God has been saying to us in chapter 7. Uh, This desire for wisdom, for knowledge, it it can be found in in this world under the sun. Knowledge that will, uh, we were told, set us up for life. Knowledge that would be like a good good inheritance. But what we started to see last week is perhaps the exact opposite of what we expected. Wisdom, uh, knowledge, uh, real knowledge, knowledge that is like an inheritance is not found in the places where we go searching. The teacher has been saying to us, you want to find wisdom? Wisdom starts not in the place of human power, but weakness. Wisdom starts in the place not of human control, but dependence. 
And if you remember last week, the teacher, if you like, walked us around three, three sort of snapshots of life to show us the sort of places where we would find real wisdom. He, he started with this. He said, wisdom is found in embracing suffering. For suffering, uh, even the coming day of death, he told us at the start of chapter 7, stops the lie that we keep telling ourselves, the pretense that says, I am in control, I do have the power to fix this, that I am self-determining. And it forces me to cry for rescue. That's where wisdom starts. And then he showed us uh, rebuke, that horrible sting of rebuke that we hate. We hate rebuke. But he says again, that's where wisdom is. Because uh, unlike our endless praise, unlike endless uh, adulation, rebuke stops the pretense that I don't need to change, that I'm fine just as I am. It forces me to see, yes, indeed, there is much that needs to change about me and much beyond my power. And then finally, he showed us a series of temptations, the sort of temptations that come upon us when we live in a frustrating world, the desire for more, the desire to give up, the desire to want to go back to the good old days. He says, in all of these things, you're grasping for power again. And so having walked around these sort of snapshots of life, if you like, the street level view of life under the sun he now in verse 13 he takes us back he sort of pans back out and he says i want you to look at the whole thing the whole of life under the sun consider verse 13 what god has done consider all of this work take in the big picture and here's the truth every detail of life under the sun is his work not yours You see, on this sphere under the sun where we live and have our being, uh, we are creatures, not the creator. And see, he tells us here, yes, it is crooked. It's all bent out of shape. You know that. But here's the thing. You can't straighten it. You can't straighten it. I reckon in this one verse, the teacher speaking God's word to us has dropped the bomb on the entire human project. The project that we're all in on, the project that says we can control things, we are progressing, we are moving forward, we're almost there. He says you cannot straighten what God has made crooked. Uh, just this uh, last week, I was at a uh, choir concert that my uh, my oldest daughter Jamie, who uh, who is six, was in. And uh, it was a, a concert where were, each school got to sing a few songs and uh, song after song by each of the schools had the same sort of theme. It's the theme that we see in the human project. It begins right at the start of life. I can do anything. I can do anything. Uh, one of the lyrics that uh, Jamie sung was this, a song called Believe. It said, I can do anything in this world if I can just believe in me. That's all I need. Well, here's the verse that says, no, you cannot straighten what God has made crooked. That life under the sun is crooked is not something that you have the wisdom, the the brains to sort out, not even the smartest of us. God has made it crooked. And as we saw earlier in this series, uh, we know that scripture declares that to us again and again. We know why he has made it crooked. We know that our sin, our rebellion, our rejection of him has ruined everything in life under the sun, absolutely everything. We have disconnected ourselves from the very author of life and as we disconnect ourselves from him, all life gets disconnected. 
And so we were told in Romans 8 uh, that he made this world crooked in judgment. He has subjected this world to frustration, literally subjected it to futility in judgment. It's meant to shout at us as we find these twists and turns, these limits, these frustrations, something's not okay. It's not okay. And you can't fix it. But if you also remember, we saw all the way through this book in Ecclesiastes, there is a second part of the answer as to why God has made this world crooked. If you flick back to chapter 3, verse 14, you will see it there. It's a theme, actually, that runs all the way through this book. But 3, verse 14 captures it perfectly for us. Why has God made this world crooked? God does it that men should fear him. Why has God subjected the world to frustration to call us to fear him, not these other things, to live life centred not on money or job or whatever it might be, but on him? To grow so disillusioned with life and our lack of control of it and the limitations of it and the frustrations of it that we will look for the one beyond the sun. We will look to our God, our creator, the one who we're told in the very last verse of this book will judge every activity under the sun there is real wisdom says God fearing me and I reckon at this point as I was uh, preparing this week I I reckon this is something Christians know well we know if you know anything of the Old Testament this is one of the the key verses we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom it's almost a memory verse for us a slogan what's wisdom it's the fear of the Lord but let me ask you do you know what it actually means to fear the Lord in a crooked world. What does it actually mean to fear the Lord? Does it mean that I respect him, that I put him first? Well, yes, in a general sense. But what does that actually look like? Well, this is what I love about Ecclesiastes. He doesn't stay in the the theoretical. He's not a philosopher. He's at best a street preacher. And so he talks about real life. He gives us in the rest of chapter 7 a, a series of instructions that are going to give flesh to what it means to fear the Lord. you want to know what it looks like to fear the Lord in real life? Here's, here's what it looks like. Uh, here's the first of them, verse 14. He says, life is crooked, you know that. So fear God by receiving both the good and the bad from his hand. Fear God by receiving both the good and the bad from his hand. You see it there, verse 14. When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider God has made one as well as the other. Our times are not dictated by our will and our plans. That's God's work. When times are good, we're told, when good times come, and they will, enjoy them. Suck the marrow out of them. Savour every little moment of the good times that come. Now let me ask you, are you in the habit of doing that? When good times come, are you in the habit of enjoying the things that come from his hand to you? Are you in the habit of thankfulness as you receive them day after day, these good things from his hand? That's part of fearing the Lord. Or has the crookedness of life stopped you even noticing the good things that are coming? Let me challenge you to look again. Test it out. See his kindness. See his goodness that keeps coming to you. Consider how many good things have come from his hand, even in this last week. I wrote these down in about a minute. This is, this is just some of the good things that have come into my world uh, in this last week. My youngest daughter, 
Matilda learnt to kiss. She's the only one of our children who can actually kiss, but she learnt to kiss. I get these little kisses on the side of my cheek and they're perfect. And she also learnt a new word, girl. And not very exceptional, I I admit, but uh, for me, every time she says it, it makes me happy. Uh, Finn, my eldest, uh, had his eighth birthday on Friday. I got to buy him his first cricket bat. I have all these memories of when my dad took, to, took me to buy my first cricket bat and uh, I got to go to Decathlon and buy his. Unfortunately, the first bat I bought had uh, the English cricket captain's signature on it. <laughs> so I had to take that back and say, this one's got something wrong with it. Can I have another one? <laughs> I, I got to ride in a Jaguar this week. Uh, very impressive. Made me very happy. I just got back from a weekend with my small group, discussing theology, walking in Cumbria, drinking fine coffee, eating one of the best meals I've ever had on Saturday night and sleeping on the thinnest mattresses uh, ever created by human hands. (laughs) I listened to the best 25 minutes of music I've heard in a long time by a music group called Bon Iver. I ate sausages four times in one week. (laughs) And I heard of a new Christian going strong in the Lord who I was worried about. The one who is wise, who fears God, has their eyes open to the many, many, many gifts that come from his hand. And they receive them not with discontent that there aren't more of them, but happy and thankful for the very gifts that he has given. But second, and this is very important, the one who is wise, who fears God, has their eyes open to the times that come that are not good, but bad. But in experiencing times like that, they don't distance themselves from God, for they know he is sovereign. Nor do they reject the bad things from his hand. They join Job in saying, shall we accept good and not trouble? Now this isn't saying that the wise person has to live in denial. It's not an instruction to call a sprout a strawberry. When something is bad, you call it bad. Sprouts are bad. (laughs) To call bad things good is to be a fool. And it's the worst form of piety for a Christian. God doesn't do that. When things are bad, they're bad. At the the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he weeps bitterly. He, He is churned inside out. It's bad. And so there will be bad times. And I say that like you don't already know it. But we do. Again, this last week was filled with many good times, but bad as well. Stan, Liz's uncle these texts coming I can't tell you how heartbreaking it was to watch her so far from these events so far from her mum desperate to be there and then uh, my new brother-in-law I just uh, really got to know him when I went out to Australia for my sister's wedding Uh, his mother was found uh, dead in bed this week it's been a bad week in a crooked world times like that will come and they will keep coming Real wisdom comes from fearing the God who made both the good and the bad times we experience. The wise person sees each good time as a time to savour and give thanks. And each bad time as a time to weep. And in the words of uh, the poet Seamus Haney, to feel the long-tailed pull of grief. To come to God as we really are under the shadow of death, broken and powerless and in desperate need of rescue. So there's the first picture of what it means to fear the Lord. Here's a second one in verses 16 and 18. Life is crooked, so fear God by avoiding foolish extremes. 
Let's see what he says. Don't be overly righteous. Neither be overly wise. Why destroy yourself? The wise man, the one who fears God, avoids these extremes because each of them represent, uh, yet again, our refusal to accept our limitations. The wise person who fears God will not pursue mastery over life by being self-righteous, thinking they can be righteous enough to master life. That's the sort of approach that supposes I can be good enough in life, my moral life. If I'm that good, then things will go well for me. That's the, that's the equation, isn't it? It's the religious answer to life under the sun, that my many deeds and my religious acts will carry God's favour to smooth the way for me. That's a delusion, the delusion of religion on two counts. Firstly, self-righteousness does not change the fact that I still live under the sun. I can mount up all my good deeds and thoughts and words, but they are no match for death. The righteous life is not a ticket to a safe passage under the sun. And secondly, self-righteousness is a miscalculation of eternal proportions. It estimates my own righteousness is enough to indebt God to me. As if I could do that. Now, more on that in a moment. But the wise person who fears God won't, won't only not pursue self-righteousness, they won't pursue this life of being overly wise. Again, that's what we've seen in these uh, recent weeks. The, the humanist answer to life. Uh, I can rise above the crookedness through knowledge. It's a bankrupt project, as we've seen. But what they won't do either is they won't pursue the opposite extremes of wickedness or foolishness, for God is the judge of every activity under the sun. In the end, the wise person, knowing the limitations and crookedness of life under the sun, will grasp the need to not pursue any of these false paths, because they know God is the sovereign creator. And so they lean not on their own righteousness, but his grace, not on their own wisdom, but his power, And they will not succumb to foolish wickedness, for he is the judge. In the end, the wise person grows in awe of God and not these things. Verse 18, the man who fears God, we're told, will avoid all extremes. That's a picture of an amazing creature, verse 18, isn't it? Avoiding all extremes, the extreme of self-righteousness, of being overly wise, wicked, foolishness, just avoiding them all. Not free from suffering, not free from the sort of sharp corners of life that hit us, not a self-determined creature. But in the midst of all of that, all that life throws at them, gentle, calm, Because they've come to the realisation they are on earth and God is in heaven. He is the king and he arranges and sustains life by his wisdom. And he is the one in the midst of all the chaos who told us uh, in Psalm 46, he said, be still. That's what it means to fear him. Know that I, not you, am God. He shouts amidst the storm of all of life under the sun, be still. Abandon your self-determined plan. Stop thinking you're God and in control and surrender. Be still. That's the very same command that Jesus gave from the boat as the storm raged around and the disciples were on the boat. He said, quiet, be still. It is the command that if we go near to listen, will move us from fearing the chaos of life under the sun to fearing only the God who is sovereign over all of that. Now there's real fear. 
but it is a fear that makes a person still not anxious. It is, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, one final picture of what it means to fear God under the sun. Verse 20 onwards, life is crooked. So fear God by realising the problem is us. The world, in the end, is crooked because we are crooked. In all the flurry of ideas and observations that Ecclesiastes has thrown at us and has thrown many at us comes an incredibly simple sentence at the end of this chapter. You see it there, verse 29? It is an explanation, now if, um, I don't think I'm overstating it, an explanation of the whole of human history in one sentence. It's like the black box flight recorder of how we ended up in this messy world. Here it is. This only have I found, said the teacher. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. And God's testimony is clear throughout the scriptures. It's, it wasn't always like this under the sun. He takes us back to those first moments, a world at birth, a world of wonder and possibility of blessing and purpose. And right at the pinnacle of that creation, man and woman made for relationship with him. Faithful relationship, relationship where we were completely sure he was committed to our good. And he showered on us life and blessing and we trusted him. There was a wonderful moment in Genesis 3, just before the fall, when, when God, the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is walking through the garden in the cool of the day, seeking fellowship with the man and the woman. That's what we were made for. Man uh, was made upright. Life under the sun was filled with this life and purpose. But here's the rest of human history in that sentence. But men have gone in search of many schemes. Now, what was very good and purposeful and full of life was shattered by the very first scheme in Genesis 3. Uh, that's where it speaks of it. But we don't need to go back there. Uh, For we men and women have been cooking up such schemes ever since. Uh, All with the same objective. The scheme that believes the lie that we don't need to live under God. Uh, We can be self-determined, so we grasp for this control, the knowledge that will empower me to do just that. And so day after day we live in a world God made, thinking we're in charge. Rather than humbly trusting and submitting ourselves to our creator, we play the fool and pretend we're king chasing after schemes in the hope that the crown will finally fit us. Because we are convinced that, ultimately, we are convinced of this, we are more committed to our good than he is. Well, as well as calling that foolish, the Bible calls that sin. And that, as you see in verse 20, is a universal disease. All of us chase after these schemes. It's a disease, sin, in the end. That's what it is, not just the symptoms that we're so good at. A disease that says uh, in our minds, I'm in control. No, you're not, says God. When have you ever been? It's a disease of the heart that says, I know what's good for me. I know my purpose. I know how to be happy. No, says God, you are nowhere near the good purposes I had in mind for you. And the wise person who fears God sees the problem in the end is us. The world is crooked because our relationship with our creator is crooked. It went from upright to unrighteous, we're told in verse 20. Crooked. And the crookedness is not without consequences. 
God, who is our creator and our judge, uh, gives us over to judgment. He subjects us to this crookedness. And you see it all the way through this chapter. There's uh, so much here, so much worth exploring. And uh, I encourage you to, to think deeply on this chapter this week. He gives us just two pictures of what sin looks like in our world, what this disease of the mind and the heart is. Uh, he talks about the way we use our words. And then he also talks in verse 26 of our unfaithfulness. But I think the most amazing picture is this, verse 27 and 28. Our sinfulness and then his resulting judgment means that we are totally disconnected from one another. You want to know what that looks like? Well, have a look at verses 27 and 28. They are controversial verses, it seems, as we look at them in the NIV. Uh, the picture, if you look at the NIV, which is a very poor translation of these verses, seems to be saying that in this world under the sun, life under the sun, that uh, men are more upright than women. One out of a thousand men was upright, no women. But a more literal translation shows that he's saying something else altogether. Let me, let me read it for you, how these verses should read. This is what I've found, says the teacher. Trying to put one person next to another, trying to join the dots, trying to make sense of humans, as if you can put one human next to another like they were cookies from a cookie cutter and they'd be exactly the same. I look for understanding. But I didn't find it. I understood one man out of a thousand, and I think he's probably talking about himself. That's all I understood. The other 999, clueless. And as to women, they remained a mystery. Now remember, this is uh, a guy who has lived life to the full. He has known many, many women. No understanding. If anyone was going to master life, master interpersonal relationships, master human-to-human -human relationships, he would be our man, clueless. That's us. We think we can master all of life under the sun, but we can't even understand ourselves. Our wisdom falls at the very first hurdle, us. We chase after what will master life, and we think we're close, but verse 23 and 24 says it's way beyond us. And just when we think we've locked onto the target, just when we think it's just around the corner mastering life, we find we're chasing our tails. It is as Proverbs says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Now all humanity knows this truth, that foolish living leads to death. That's obvious, isn't it? But Ecclesiastes is saying something remarkable. It is saying, not only does human folly ultimately lead to death, so does human wisdom. That's why, as we move towards communion in a few moments, that's why we love the cross. That's why we come back to it again and again and again. That's why we were called upon by our Saviour to remember him again and again in this simple meal, because here is wisdom. Here is the very heart of our faith. The cross of Christ is God's powerful wisdom for life under the sun, the only wisdom to shake us from our pretensions of control. It is his declaration that this world's wisdom fails where things matter most in knowing the true and living God and being reconnected with him. Fails when it matters most in overcoming this horrible thing that renders our life futile, death. Worldly wisdom can put a man on the moon, it can cure diseases, it can make us faster and higher, stronger, smarter, even better looking. But it doesn't have a clue how to know God. 
doesn't know where salvation or rescue is found. For all our power, there is not one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one seeks God. And so God brings to our world through the message of the cross the saving knowledge of him, of a world upheld not by our power but his. The message of the cross in the end is God saying to this world, you cannot approach me on your terms, you cannot approach me with your wisdom, your work, whatever it might be. I approach you on my terms. And here they are. Show me your wisest thought your most powerful achievement, and I will show you the most foolish, weak thing you have ever seen, a pathetic man dying on a hill, and it will be wiser and stronger than anything you can muster because that will be what saves you. And it will leave you under the sun with no grounds to boast, no wisdom, no knowledge, no wealth, no nothing. The only solid ground left to stand on under the sun will be my grace, my forgiveness in Christ and him crucified. Well, let's pray. Father God, in a a few moments we will move to uh, this simple meal of bread and wine to remember our Saviour's death for us, his body broken, his blood shed. And so easily we can do that uh, mechanically, uh, religiously. But Father, we pray tonight that for each one of us uh, that this will be again a remembrance of our powerlessness, uh, but your incredible wisdom, your wisdom in the foolish, weak cross of your Son. And so, Father, we do pray that you would shake from us any pretensions of control and that we would flee to him again. Amen.